Good morning. Good to see you. Um, this is uh, the completion of our Advent series. So far we uh, have explored, um, there's a slide coming up there somewhere, isn't there? Yes, there is. Um, so far we've explored these, uh, these truths of hope and peace and joy and love. And today we conclude uh, with talking about love. And you may have thought, well, that was a pretty depressing psalm. Um, uh, it seemed full of a lot of negative stuff. How are you going to drag some love out of that? Um, we will. Um, and it's, you'd think that love would be the most simple attribute to talk about, right? Everybody knows what love is, right? Uh, after all, we all do it, we all receive it, we all see it. Uh, it should be straightforward, right? But there's a critical question, and that critical question is, this is not going to work, is it? Ah, oh, it is going to work, I'm oh, sorry. Uh, it's always a danger doing these things, isn't it? The critical question is, who gets to define reality? Who gets to define meaning? Who gets to define truth? So let's pray. Father God, um, we simply want to acknowledge this morning that you are the one who defines reality. You are the one who has created all things. Uh, you've ordered all things. You've named all things. Um, you have defined what was and what is and what is to come. You determine that which is good and that which is right. So help us, Lord, this morning as, uh, as we meet to, to see things as you see things, to think as you think, uh, to feel as you feel, to value as you value, to love as you love. And, and may our version of reality and truth uh, be more fully aligned with yours in every part of life. Amen. We will either find uh, meaning uh, and understanding of things through the lens of who God is or through the lens of the culture in which we live. There are, there are two options. Um, I want to uh, apologise. If we go for the next one, please. Uh, I want to apologise for the fact that I'm going to quote from the message. Um, I know it's not the purest thing to do, but um, Eugene Peterson puts uh, this idea very well for us. He says at the beginning of Romans 12, embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. So the first point I want to make is there is a right and wrong order. 
we either start in our understanding of things with God or we start with the culture. Uh, either God informs the culture or the culture informs us about God. And when we consider the love of God, which is our focus this morning, many people are prone to start with the culture. And there is a common view that love is just a full acceptance of everyone's self-expression, everyone's uh, self-centered desire. Um, love is often seen as a kind of tolerance of all things as long as you're not causing harm to anybody. Right? That's the idea of love. It is consensual uh, and it does no harm. And so we hear phrases like, well, you do you. Right? The famous Oprah phrase. Or be true to yourself. Or live in your own authenticity. Um, and all of these things are aberrant. We hear things like, you need to follow your dreams, follow your heart. And they're humanized interpretations of love. They are self-love rather than godly love. In any culture, one of, the, one of the best ways of finding out what people are thinking is to consider what is it they're watching or listening to. It used to be what people are reading, but that's probably not apt anymore. So what are people watching and hearing that informs their understanding of love? Firstly, uh, you, I know you won't have seen any of these programs. But I'm, I'm just trying to inform you as to what the culture is doing, right? There's this program called My Mum, Your Dad. And if you haven't seen it, uh, don't bother. <laughs> uh, it, it is a strange program that where children of parents who have had uh, relationships that have fallen apart are watching their parents form new relationships. And the focus, it says, is single parents looking for love. Wait for this. Australia's most wholesome reality TV dating show. It isn't. The next one. Uh, the next one is Love Island Australia. Has anybody watched these things? Come on, be honest, be honest. Nobody. You're all sanctified. This is wonderful. <laughs> And the, the selling point of this is a brand new batch of Aussie singles will soon be entering a Spanish villa to couple up with other islanders in a bid to find what? In a bid to find true love. You can see that that, that context is guaranteed that they will find true love. And thirdly, uh, I won't go through all of these because it's, it's all very embarrassing, Married at First Sight, Australia's most controversial social experiment, an addictive mix of love and drama. Now, I could tell you of a lot more of these programs, but honestly, you're, you're two immodest people to, to even know about these things. Um, and if we think that these aberrant views of love do not invade our lives, do not invade the church even, then consider this. Next. We attended a wedding a few years ago um, where it was a Christian wedding. Um, 
And the pastor came up with the normal phrases, uh, do you take Mary to be your wedded wife, to live together in marriage? Do you promise to love her, comfort her, honour and keep her for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health? All good things, right? And forsaking all others, be faithful only to her as long as you both shall live. That's what it should be, right? This is what he said. As long as you both shall love. Woo. I thought, okay, he's just made an error. He's just made a mistake. It's a slip of the tongue. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, do you realise what you said? He said, what do you mean? I said, you said, as long as you both shall love instead of as long as you both shall live. He says, no, that's what I meant. Ironically, that marriage hasn't survived. But these things invade our lives. And I had a discussion with him and he said, well, if they stop loving one another, what's the point of continuing? A strange view of love. And there are friends and family members that we have, that certainly I have, who don't seem to see love in the same way that we do, or God does, and the Bible tells us. The next. My mother... Um, I became a Christian, or we became Christians, way back in the 70s. And we wrote to my mother, who was living in the UK, and we told her of this joy of the fact that Christ had found us, and we were madly in love with God. Now, letters in those days, because we didn't have phones and stuff, we had letters, um, they probably took two weeks to get there and then the reply took weeks, two weeks to come back. So we waited patiently for what I thought would be mum's joyous response to this great news. Nothing. It was as though this message had gone uh, down the, the, the plug hole of the sink. Nothing returned. Eventually, when I got to talk to my mother, I said to her, um, did you get the message about the fact that you know, Christ has redeemed us and we're in love with God and life has taken on whole new meaning. She said, yes. Not exactly excited. She said, yes. And she said, I suppose that means you now love me less. See, it's interesting that, that there is a, a view that says love has a certain quantity to it. And if you're spending your love here, you can't spend it here. That isn't a biblical view. And it wasn't until I was able to nurse my mother when she was terminally ill that she began to see that the love that I had for her was vastly increased as a consequence of me understanding the love of God for me. But it took that for her to realise that love was not quantity it's quality, and it arises from outside of us. But in all of those examples, you see, love is limited. It's partial. It's conditional. It's manipulative. It's all of these perspectives make love a very uncertain thing, a very unsure thing, uh, in the sense probably that love 
is seen to have to be deserved. It's something we earn. And that's simply not the biblical view. It's not the way God sees it, and it's not the way we should see it. And, and the consequence is when we Christians talk about love, we're talking a foreign language. We're talking a language that people do not understand what we mean. Um, it, it's, it's a trivialization in our culture of what love is. Uh, and unfortunately, when we trivialize love, in a sense, we trivialize God. And that's not a good thing. So compelled was uh, Don Carson about this issue of people's misunderstanding of love, if we can go to the next one, that he wrote a little book. And if you haven't read the little book, it's actually a little book worth reading twice. Because when you read it the first time, <laughs> you think, huh? When you read it the second time, it makes sense. And Don Carson, in this little book, and it's only about 80 pages, it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And you'd think, why would the doctrine of love be difficult? Um, well, for some of the reasons that we've just outlined. And Don Carson says this, what the Bible says about the love of God cannot be abstracted, cannot be separated from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, to mention only a few non-negotiable elements of basic Christianity. The result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. Sentimentalized. There's a lot of syllables in that word. And here's the main point that we need to, to recognize this morning. If we don't understand and continue to grow in our understanding of what love is according to God, then we cannot truly love him. And if we cannot truly love him, we cannot truly love one another. So it's really, really important. Okay, if we go for the next. So we're back on track now with the ESV, so you can cancel the pastoral visit. Um, <laughs> And we're looking at Psalm 143, and as I said, it seems a little bit depressing there to start with, but, um, but let's see if we can make some good sense of it. There are, there are actually hundreds of places, obviously, where we could gain a picture of the love of God. And this psalm, uh, Psalm 143, if you've got it open, it would be good to have a look at it, um, is a conversation that David is having with God. Um, and it explores the issue of love. We don't know the exact context of, um, this, of David's life at this point when he writes this psalm. It may have been uh, before he became king and his struggles with living as um, a fugitive from Saul. Uh, it may have been when his son Absalom had, had uh, led a rebellion against him. Whatever the situation was, we can recognise that he was experiencing some crisis, some, some major anguish and difficulty, which pushes him back into the uh, embrace of what he says is a righteous, merciful and loving God. 
we should find reassurance in that, right? That, that David experiences these problems and troubles and difficulties and weariness, as Ray was talking about recently, um, and that should push us back in to understanding uh, the love of God. And the first seven verses of this psalm are a contrast between the righteousness of God and David's own unrighteousness. He contrasts the sin which crushes his life um, and causes him to feel as though he's almost dead. Uh, the sin and despondency which saps all the energy out of his life. You can tell from this psalm. Um, and it causes him to be appalled at his own heart. Um, he, is, he is so depressed, he is so miserable, he is so at a loss to know uh, what to do, at a loss to see any positives in life, that he, he is almost dead. It's sapped everything out of him. And he contrasts all of this with what he knows of God. He's forced into a position of saying, I have nothing, so I have to look to God. And he's therefore desperate for the Father's undeserved love and mercy. If we go for the next slide, thanks. So Psalm 143, the title, The Steadfast, Unfailing Love of God. He says, let me hear in the morning, in verse 8, let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. And there's almost a desperation of where else can I go? Steadfast is, is an incredibly strong word, isn't it? And, and there are different versions. Um, if you read different versions in the scriptures, that word uh, may be changed with something else. But it means um, unfailing and unwavering and persistent and resolute and dependable and faithful and trustworthy and constant and committed. And only God can love with that sort of love. At our very best, our love has some conditionality to it. It simply does. Our love, our human love, fails easily. It, it's just as well that our relationship with God doesn't depend on our love. It, it depends on his love for us, his steadfast and unfailing love. And the fact that we're in a relationship with God at all is testament to his unfailing love. It always, this unfailing love always ensures that he does what is right. He's always faithful to us. And obviously that, that faithfulness is expressed most clearly um, in the way that he satisfies righteousness and mercy through Christ. So the first thing we can conclude is that God's steadfast love is righteous, undeserved, and merciful. That's the nature of his love. And in Psalm 36, um, David describes this love. Sorry, I'm going to lapse into the message again for a minute. It, 
the Psalm 36 in, in the message version says this beautiful words. God's love is meteoric. Isn't that great? His loyalty, astronomic. His purpose, titanic. His verdicts, oceanic. Yet in his largeness, nothing gets lost. Not a man, not a mouse slips through the cracks. So you got this great picture of the, the fabulous enormity of the love of God dealing with the very smallest thing that you can possibly imagine. How good is that? How good is that? And in response to that understanding of the steadfast, unfailing love of God, David wants to hear God's word. He wants to hear God's voice. So in verse 8 again, we see, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. See, God's word is going to remind David, as it should remind us, of God's unfailing love. It strengthens his faith. It gives him guidance on whatever he does. It's not only guidance, but the power to respond to that guidance. David says, make me know the way I should go. Not suggest my direction. Not, not give us a few options. But make me know the direction I should go. I am desperate because I know you love me. I know that the direction you will make me go will be right. How good is that? And so we can conclude that God's steadfast love, next one, is transformative. It changes us. It causes us to do things rightly. David then goes on to say, I need your protection. In verse 9, he says, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. He recognises that God is his only refuge, his only place of safety. Therefore, we can conclude that God's steadfast love is securing. No matter what difficulties we find ourselves in, God's love will secure us. And knowing that God loves him with steadfast love is totally securing. Knowing that God loves him with his unfailing love gives him confidence to say, show me what to do. Not only show me what to do, but make me do it. So he goes on in verse 10 to say, teach me to do your will. Teach me, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. He trusts that God's good spirit will teach him from the word and show him the path he should take. And this will give him confidence. So we can conclude that God's steadfast love guides us how good are these things like the psalmist we discover that God's unfailing love transforms us as we live in relationship with our steadfast 
unfailing, loving God, we realise he hears our prayers. He takes our concerns seriously. He provides for our needs. And we end up with this, what, what, what I would call covenant confidence in God. A covenant confidence. And we need to love other people in those sorts of ways. If we are secured in that covenant confidence with God, we have nothing to fear in our relationship with people. This is unfailing love. This is amazing love, the words of a song. And it comes from God and it transforms us moment by moment. At the end of this psalm, David pleads for protection and guidance and recognises that his only possible response to the love of God is what? His total obedience. What does he say? For I am your servant. I am your servant. The most secure place to be in the world is to be dependent upon God. Now, isn't that culturally inappropriate? Because what does the world tell us? You must be independent. What does the Bible tell us? The most secure place in the world is to be dependent upon God. And that's the conclusion David comes to. I am your servant. And what a joy that is. What a secure place that is. And so we can conclude that God's steadfast love demands our obedience. And if we stop there, that's good, right? Those are such good things. When we say what something is, we're, all, we're always saying, in a sense, too, what something is not. And if we look at the next slide, we can see that God's love from this psalm and from our understanding of the scriptures is extravagant and merciful and undeserved, but it's not indulgent. We can see that it's transformational, but it's not transactional. Transactional means if X, then Y. We can see that it's purposeful, but it's not sentimental. We can see that it's freely given, and yet it demands everything of us. And if we have an aberrant view that God simply accepts and tolerates and affirms every thought and choice and action in our lives, there will be a sense in which the reality of, of God's love is offensive to us. It will be seen as restrictive to us. It will be seen as a, a penalty in our lives. But it's a call to holiness. It never leaves us where we are but it challenges us to conform to the image of Christ. And do you know what seeing all this truth does for us? It brings us total security. Total security. And David is able to say, let's repeat this, I am your servant. 
I am captured by you. I owe everything to you. I depend upon you. I'm in the most secure place that it's possible for a person to be. I'm not a reluctant servant. I'm a joyful servant. This is where happiness is to be found. I'm secured. I'm forgiven. I'm loved. Let us repeat this truth. God's love is directed by God's holiness. It always and only moves towards holy ends. God's love is purposeful. God disciplines those whom he loves. It's not God indulges those whom he loves. It's God disciplines those whom he loves. And our unholiness is going to be constantly challenged and corrected by God. What a joy that is. That he delights in us so much that he wants to discipline us towards righteousness. How good is that? This focus on, on love is reflected in today's song that we'll sing in a few moments, So Holy Night. And slide um, 14, this, this verse 3 begins, Truly, he taught us to love one another. His law is love, and his gospel is peace. And you can see where this is going, right? The phrase, that phrase, his law is love, points us to that stunning passage in Matthew where the Pharisees attempted to trick Jesus by asking, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the law and the prophets. So, the order of things is important. The order of things is important. In English idiom, we talk about putting the cart before the horse. And we say, that's stupid. You know, we talk about, um, we would not, for example, put on our shoes and then try and put on our socks, right? Um, doesn't make sense. Um, we wouldn't uh, wake up in the morning, put on our clothes, and then go for a shower, right? The, or the order of things is important, right? And if you're a math nerd, the order of things is important. The order of operations, you know, whether you add or subtract or multiply or brackets or whatever you do, um, the order of things is important, otherwise you end up with the incorrect answer, right? And so Jesus says there's a first command and there's a second. And the first command is love God. And the second command is, as a consequence, love people. And that order cannot be reversed. If you're um, an Augustine lover, which I am, um, Augustine, St. Augustine became convinced that what defines a person more than anything else, is what they love. Uh, and he argued that unhappiness and disorder of our lives are caused by either loving wrongly or having our loves in the wrong order. In other words, he said sin is loving the wrong things or loving the right things in the wrong order. Can you follow that? 
haven't got time to explain all of that, but it's, it's a good thought. Uh, and we need to know the love of God for us, and we need to know that we will therefore love God because he first loved us. And we need to know that love then overflows into the lives of others. That's the correct order of loving. It doesn't work any other way. So truly he taught us to love one another, the words of the song. How does he teach us to love one another? By knowing him. We will become like the object of our love. How do we know him? By looking to Christ. God is love shown to us in the person of Jesus. And God has committed us to transform us to be like Jesus. So this is, this is incredibly powerful. That if we know the love of God by his great grace through Jesus Christ, we know that we're forgiven, we know that we're secured. As Charles Wesley says in that, in that great little hymn, God owns me as his child. I love that line. Every time we sing that line, it chokes me up because it's so true, right? God owns me as his child. That is so delightful. And we will love God and this truth will drive every aspect of our living. And it's not legalistic. It's not, oh, I have to love because God loves me. No. no. It is so securing. And out of that security, we can love and love and love. We don't love through gritted teeth. But a genuine love born out of, of knowing the love and mercy and security of God. And this love of God is, 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 we can see from that psalm and so many other places, is committed and powerful and, and transformative. And it's, it's, it's covenantal and it's permanent and it's unchanging. And, um, you know, the mercy that God provides is a gift to us. The righteousness that he's bringing us to is a gift to us. The security is a gift to us. Um, what privileged people we are, right? Uh, so can we love people with whom we disagree? Absolutely. Does God love us even though we push back? Sure he does. But and we can still graciously disagree with those people that we love, right? Love does not mean that people all have to think the same way as us. Can we love someone who lives unrighteously? Well, does God love us in our unrighteousness? He sure does. But what does God do? He graciously changes us by confronting us with, with those situations. And, and one of the things that we fail to do in, in, in our culture is to differentiate between love and affirmation. We can love people despite their unrighteous behaviour without affirming that unrighteous behaviour. But it's gentleness, right? Why? Because God is gentle with us. He's patient with us. 
And so we will love well. How do we love one another? Number one, we see Christ who comes and loves us. Number two, that God provides us with this incredible security. And number three, because we are loved well, we can love well. And so our celebration of Christmas is almost here. Tomorrow we'll all be doing good things. But one of the things uppermost in our minds and our thinking and our hearts will be Christ has come. He has come. It's a celebration of the one who comes in humility uh, and, as Dave said, full of grace and truth, who shows us this great love of the triune God, the one who comes to pursue us in our brokenness uh, and in our pain, to pursue those who are lost and wayward, and to bring real peace and real hope and real joy and real love. And when we're overawed by that, which when we stop to think about it, we cannot be anything less than overawed by that. When we are overawed by that truth, that undeserved love of God, we will love him and we will love others with a growing abundance. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your incredible love. You are love. And you are so patient in communicating the nature of that love to us. We are so resistant to being loved. So Lord, we, we pray that you'll break through our resistance. You'll continue to show us the, the depth and the breadth and the the wonder of your great love for us. And Lord, as we understand that, we pray that we will freely give that love to those whom we meet, to our family members, to friends, to strangers. So Lord, thank you. Thank you for securing us. Thank you for transforming us. In Jesus' name, amen.